Good morning, wherever you are, and welcome to St. Michael's in the Morning, a podcast series encompassing everything from sermons and services to special audio presentations, brought to you by St. Michael's Episcopal Church in Austin, Texas. For more information or to make a donation to St. Michael's, please visit www.st-michaels.org. Welcome to episode 29 of Calm Words for Anxious Hearts, and this is part two in our five-week series on prayer. And the goal of this series isn't just to explore the topic of prayer in general, but God willing to move us deeper into an expression and practice of prayer in our own life. Last week, we talked a little bit about why we pray and the nature of the God to whom we pray. And this week, we turn our attention to how we pray which the Bible sums up with the words, in Jesus' name. And so what does that mean, to pray in Jesus' name? And it's actually somewhat of a complicated question, and to answer this question, it will mean reacquainting ourselves with an aspect of the biblical worldview that we often forget, namely that as people who routinely miss the mark with respect to what God requires, that we're all in somewhat of a predicament. God is holy, God is righteous, but you and I, when left to ourselves and our own devices, are not holy and we're definitely not righteous. The prophet Habakkuk says that God's eyes are too pure to even look upon evil, but if that's true, how are we supposed to pray, you know, if God can't even look at us? That's our predicament, at least when looked at through a certain lens. And the Bible has a solution to our predicament. It's called the priest. Now, before I go any further, I want to be clear. I'm not talking about myself. I'm not talking about any denominational priest. You don't need me to bridge the gap between you and God. I do not have the power to deny you grace by virtue of my ordination. I don't choose who gets grace and who does not get grace, Not to mention that I am just as flawed as you are. But biblically speaking, you still need a priest. Not necessarily an Episcopal priest, which would be a different episode altogether, but you need a priest in the ultimate sense, someone to mediate between you and your sin and God and God's perfection. And so to understand what praying in Jesus' name means, there are two questions we need to answer. Number one, who is our priest? Number two, what does that mean for our prayer life? Now to answer these questions, we need to brush up on what a priest does, at least in the Bible. In the Old Testament, a priest does two things. First, a priest acts as a bridge between humanity and God. In the Old Testament, people wanting to pray really only had one option. They would have to go find a priest, someone to offer a sacrifice to bridge the gap between themselves and God. Second, a priest is deeply sympathetic to the needy, the poor, and the broken. Old Testament priests functioned as public health officers in a sense. It was their job to work with the lepers and the lame and the overlooked. And so being a priest is a twofold job. It's about standing before God as a bridge and about being deeply, deeply sympathetic to all people. 
Now, with that in mind, I want to turn to the story of the first priest and the first prayer that's recorded in the Bible. And this reading is from Genesis 18, verses 17 through 33. Then the men set out from there, and they looked towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall become a great and mighty nation, and that all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? No, for I have chosen him. Then the Lord said, How great is the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, and how grave their sin! I must go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city, will you then sweep away the place and not forgive it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will forgive the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered, Let me take it upon myself to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking, will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of the forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, do not let the Lord be angry if I speak. Suppose thirty are found there. God answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Let me take it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of the twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, do not let the Lord be angry if I speak just once more. Suppose ten are found there. God answered, For the sake of the ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Here ends the reading. Now let's be honest, this is a very strange story. God and Abraham's conversation doesn't sound like a prayer at all. It sounds like someone haggling a street vendor to get a good deal on a watch. But what I want you to see is that underneath the surface of this exchange, that Abraham isn't just praying. Abraham is taking on the role of a priest. You see, God invites Abraham to stand before him, to enter God's presence, and to serve as Sodom's attorney, to plead on behalf of the city. It's actually amazing what God says, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? And then God says, no, I think I will invite Abraham to weigh in. And then Genesis says that Abraham came near, which in the Hebrew is a legal term that basically means to approach the bench. And so this is really an amazing scene. The people of Sodom are on trial, and according to the book of Ezekiel 1649, their sin is that they have been oppressing the poor. 
And so God invites Abraham to be their defense attorney, to stand in God's presence and to plead on their behalf. Now, at this point, there's something we need to look at, something we'll miss if we read the story through the lens of our individualistic culture. Abraham knows the people of Sodom are guilty. They have been oppressing the poor, and he knows that God would be just to punish the entire city. And if we're honest, to our modern sensibilities, this just does not make sense, that God would punish the whole city. Why not single out the bad apples who do all the oppressing? Well, remember, we live in an individualistic culture, a culture that says that my sin is my sin and that your sin is your sin. And so if John Doe kills his wife, then he alone will be tried for murder and he alone will be punished. Not his father that abused him as a child, not his wife who cheated on him, not the vendor that sold him the gun, not the Hollywood execs making action movies because they know that violence sells. Only John Doe will be punished. And in a human court, to be very clear, that is probably for the best. But the Bible's view of sin and guilt is a bit more balanced. You see, the Bible leans a bit toward corporate responsibility, meaning that when it comes to our sin, the Bible challenges our individualistic leanings. And so whereas we like to say, just you, you're responsible and no one else, God often says, no, 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 you're all responsible, and I would be right and just in punishing all of you. And so whereas our culture blames John Doe for murder, God knows that John Doe's sin is a little bit more complicated, that we are interdependent people, and that we're all complicit in each other's sins. Does God hold John Doe responsible? Absolutely. But God also knows that his father, his wife, the vendor, the people working at the factory, the execs making the movie, and the people who paid $10 to watch that movie all have some role in the killing of his wife. Which brings us back to our text. Who is responsible for the outcry against Sodom? Well, from the perspective of whoever wrote Genesis, the entire city. And Abraham assumes that God would be right to punish all of them. And so when Abraham says, will the judge of the earth not do what is right, he is not suggesting that God would be unjust to destroy Sodom. No, Abraham assumes God's justice. But what Abraham is wondering is this. Could it work the other way around? Could God value the righteousness of the few so much that he is willing to spare the unrighteousness of the many? If I can be judged for the sins of someone else, could I also be left off the hook for the righteousness of someone else? Could it work the other way around? If people with whom I'm in solidarity sin and I can be judged for that, What if I'm in solidarity with someone who is righteous? Could that righteousness cover my sin? You see, in asking God to spare the city for the sake of the 50, the 40, the 20, and the 10, what Abraham is asking God to do is to so honor the righteousness of the few that God forgives the unrighteousness of the many. But here's what's so amazing. Abraham, the first priest that prays the very first prayer, quits at 10. 
And isn't that what makes the scene so odd? This reading is like a play that's missing the final scene, like a symphony missing the final note. Build up, build up, build up. But then the show just ends. 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. We're almost there. The reader is waiting for God to spare the whole city if one righteous man is found. But Abraham loses his nerve and doesn't ask and goes back home. Now, I'm not sure why Abraham did that. He probably just lost his nerve. He was, after all, talking to God, and Abraham is clearly getting more terrified with each request. But Abraham was clearly on to something. He came to see that the God in whose presence he stood valued righteousness so much that if only one righteous person could be found, that this one person's righteousness could cover the unrighteousness of the many. And so here's the million-dollar question. Where can you and I find such a righteous one? Because whenever we find the righteous one, we'll find our priest. A reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 17. After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, I have made your name known to those whom you gave me from the world. I am asking on their behalf, Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you, and these know that you have sent me. Here ends the reading. This is a portion of Jesus' prayer the night before he dies. Scholars call it the high priestly prayer. Why? Because in John 17, Jesus approaches the bench, and Jesus pleads for his people. What Abraham was on the verge of discovering, that the righteousness of one could forgive the unrighteousness of the many, Jesus executes. You see, Jesus knew that he alone was the true high priest, the righteous one whose mission was to bridge that gap between God and humanity, not by offering a sacrifice, but by becoming one. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I do. And I ask that you would value my righteousness so much that their unrighteousness would be forgiven. In John 17, Jesus approached the bench and he stands there to this very day. And so who is our priest? The answer is obviously Jesus. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name, to trust Jesus as our priest before God. As the author of Hebrews puts it, Jesus saves those who approach God through him, for he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting that we should have such a great high priest, holy, blameless, and undefiled. And so I want you to understand how radical this is. It means that before we ever pray to God, that God in Christ lives to pray for us that Jesus lives to make intercession for us, and Jesus is always in the presence of God pleading on our behalf. And because he is the righteous one, God never turns him down. 
And so let's get practical. What does that mean for our prayer life? Revelation 1.6 puts it like this, to Jesus who loves us and freed us from our sins and made us to be priests, serving his God and Father. Peter, writing to his flock, reminds them that they are a royal priesthood. The author of Hebrews urges believers to boldly approach the throne of grace, which by now we should recognize as priestly language. If Jesus is our priest, that means that we are priests too. The work of prayer is the work of a priest. And let's not forget what priests do. Number one, a priest stands in the presence of God, has intimacy with God, and speaks freely with God. Number two, a priest feels great sympathy for the broken and the needy, and because of that, a priest wants to help. Practically speaking, as we learn to pray, both of these priestly tasks will become second nature to us. First, we will learn to live in the presence of God and to speak freely with God the way a young child speaks to his father or mother. And second, as we learn to pray, our desire to help the broken and the needy will go up. And I don't necessarily mean the person in the shelter. Of course, that person is included I mean the broken and the needy people we interact with day in and day out. Prayer gives us new eyes. The person we once saw as a satanic devil we come to see as a wounded child, someone who's been hurt time and time again and who's learned to bite back just to survive. And the person on trial for murder, his spirit was murdered long before he pulled that trigger. Prayer helps us see there is only one who is righteous. And because we see clearly that the righteous one is not us, our anger turns to compassion. Let us pray. Almighty and most merciful God, we remember before you all poor and neglected persons whom it would be easy for us to forget, the homeless and the destitute, the old and the sick, and all who have none to care for them. Help us to heal those who are broken in body or spirit and to turn their sorrow into joy. Grant this, Father, for the love of your Son, who for our sake became poor. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.